Hey everyone, the It's All Journalism team wanted to remind you that we have an email newsletter where you can get all the latest news about our podcast. Go to our website, itsalljournalism.com, and follow the link to subscribe. And now, enjoy our latest episode. Why are they saying it's not the right fit, or what hidden powers are sort of influencing what stories make it and which ones don't? Are there advertisers? Are there hurt feelings, alliances? Like, that's juicy. Today, I talked to a podcaster whose series is pulling back the curtain on how newsrooms decide when to kill a story and some of the forces that may be influencing that decision. I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Imagine your editor pulls the plug on a story that you've spent months investigating or that no one will publish the powerful human interest story about racism you've written. That would suck. But it's also part of journalism that most people outside of the news industry are completely unaware of. Justine Harmon hosts a weekly podcast called Killed, all in cap letters, uh, that gives life to investigative stories that were too hot to publish or were killed before the public had a chance to hear about them. Justine, welcome to It's All Journalism. Thank you for having me. So first of all, tell me a little bit about yourself. I know before you came to podcasting, you you were in journalism. You're still in journalism, technically. <laughs> what got you into uh, journalism? What was the bug that bit you? I feel like I sort of was like a late bloomer in the journalism space. I was very desirous of being a journalist. Even now, using the word feels like maybe it's a misnomer. I don't know exactly what I am. I'm like a chronicler or like... I've always had a very robust memory, so whenever I do one of these stories, one of the things that is fun about Killed is that, you know, if someone says something that triggers something, a memory in my head or a reference, like we usually, you know, take a second and just tap dance on that reference. And I think, you know, like-minded people will be like, oh, I thought of that too. That's funny. You know, like I hope they do. But I've always loved magazines. I grew up in a magazine household. Uh, My mom was like a, a really prodigious magazine. She still reads magazines. Like she'll go to the airport and buy a stack of them. And she used to send like clips and stuff, like, you know, pull things out of magazines that she wants to buy. Like that was sort of a thing that I was raised with. And we really just agreed on on fashion magazines specifically. And I also, I collected ads, like I collected milk ads and weirdly absolute ads when I was like a kid. And so I made it sort of my business. Like I would go to my uncle's house in Marin County and like go through his old Bon Appetit's looking for, you know, the elusive friends milk mustache ad. Like I was always very tactile and invested in magazines. And then my older sister, who is nine years older than I am, she got a job at Vanity Fair in the 90s under Graydon Carter. And it was just, you know, the heyday. And everything that she does, I think, is just perfect. She's like, I was just thinking about this today, like in Parks and Recreation, how Amy Poehler looks at Rashida Jones and is like, you're perfect, Ann Perkins. Like, she's my Ann Perkins. So she worked in magazines. So I was like, so I'll work in magazines. And it just took me a really long time to get there. I spent like four years after graduating from college trying to get my first editorial assistant job. And I finally got it in 2010 at People. And that's where sort of the actual career began. Before that, I was working in PR and I was assisting a celebrity stylist in New York. But even after the financial collapse, even after every magazine, you know, was dropping or reducing their 
the print, you know, 10 issues a year, eight issues a year, whatever they were, I still wanted to do it. I just had a vision of what it would feel like in my head. And then I got to People. And from there, I worked at L for five years. And then the last place I worked was Glamour. And there are elements of working in a magazine that were just the way I had it in my head. I loved the work. I loved like laying out a page. I loved the specificity of the heads and the decks and the best idea winning and finding a story, all that just always. And still, like if I could still work on a magazine every day, I would. I would. It's interesting. I think you're the first person I've interviewed who's, who's talked about the visual tactical elements of ads and the impact of that. And he, he just, you know, it's something you don't even think about how much thought, <laughs> how much art school and, and college education went into, you know, why that headline is looking the way it does. And sadly, that's one of the things that we've sort of gotten away. You can do you know, web page design and things like that to sort of get a lot of the same types of things. But with the disappearance of so many, you know, magazines, it's kind of sad because that's sort of a, a place where, you know, our industry kind of meets art. Yeah. I mean, for a certain personality type, you know, a, a magazine's only so many pages. The page is only so big. Like, you have to work within these, like, Dr. Seussian, you know, guidelines. And I think the creative juices really flow that way. Like they'd have to change the font if you make the headline one more word. So how do you make the word, you know, I like all those little puzzles and I, I love the control. I loved all of it. I love in copy. I love in design. I just find it all very, very exciting. <laughs> and I was never a news junkie. That's the difference. Like I don't like to adhere to the cadence of the news cycle. It stresses me out. I liked that a magazine was like a time capsule from the near future and that you're prognosticating what people are going to get excited about. I mean, that's power. That's exciting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And certainly for things like, well, yeah, some things are around product, you know, that you've got magazines that, that are financed in a way that, that you know, you're going to spend money on, you know, camping equipment. But then you have things like fashion where, you know, that's part of the prognostication is like, what is fashion going to be in, you know, six months or a year? And, you know, how is that going to change an industry? And what does that mean to people? And what does it mean culturally? Lots of interesting questions that come to that. So podcasting, how did podcasting right. come into your life? <laughs> when I was working at Glamour, I was the features director there. And my friend who now works at the New York Times Book Review, her name's Liz Egan, she had brought to a morning meeting that we were doing at the time. We had this like daily morning meeting where we were sort of forced to grapple with the daily news cycle, which stressed me out. Oh but she <laughs> brought up this grisly news incident that she'd read about, about these two white women who drove their four adopted black kids off a cliff in Mendocino County. That's a good lead. That's a really good lead. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I read that too. And so it was like out of a movie, but our editor-in-chief, her name is Sam Barry, she's still there, but she came from CNN. She was like, okay, you two, like, do it. And we were like, do what? So we ended up finding like a boots on the ground journalist, a woman named Lauren Smiley, who's incredible. And she literally pieced together the last days of these women's lives. And as we were sort of putting together this piece, which turned out to be a very long, in-depth feature that we all contributed to, it was very unconventional. But Lauren was the reporter, and she found all the amazing facts and details that make the story so insane. But as we were doing this, the digital editorial director by the name of Laurel Pinson. I, yeah, it was Laurel Pinson. She was like, this is a podcast. And I was like, cool, podcasts. I love podcasts. So I was really like, let's do that. And so long story short, because it was Condé Nast and they have like an engine behind them, we were able to sell this idea sort of mid-editing process 
as a podcast, we started like capturing decent tape on like our new Zoom five Zoom H five recorders, and we just sort of got a crash course from How Stuff Works. They ended up being our partner on it, and then How Stuff Works was acquired by iHeart. But we learned from a producer who came up to New York from Atlanta. His name is Jason Hoke, and he basically taught me everything I know about podcasting and storytelling. He told me, you know, just like lean into how you talk and all these things that would be so obvious, but were not obvious to me when I was doing my first reads and stuff. And so I just, I don't know, I learned how to podcast at Glamour. That podcast did very well. It was the first ever nonfiction narrative series, audio series that Connie Nast had ever done. And it was number one for like two weeks. And I loved it. It was the same feeling I get from magazine making. I love long form. I love telling weird fringe stories, which my editors at these mainstream fashion magazines were like, why are you so dark? (laughs) What is wrong with you? And then in podcasting, they're like, we love that. People love that stuff. So it just became a new place for me to put my weird ideas. And the rest is kind of history. And I left Glamour right before the pandemic, thinking I would have like a robust multimedia career, you know, medium agnostic. And I've written for magazines and one time for the New York Times, but mostly I make podcasts. And that's just where I've seen the most opportunity. And that's how I got here. And Killed is sort of, you know, a marriage of all those interests. So that's why I like it so much. One of the things about when you get into podcasting, especially if you come out of the journalism space or the print space, is you are part of the product more so than like your byline or the layout that you're doing, you know, your presentation, who you are, you know, what you sound like. And so your, your podcast person may be more heightened than, you know, I'm, you know, I'm a crazy person, but, but I'm more of a crazy person in a podcast. I mean, was that something that you were able to sort of comfortably get into, or is that something you sort of developed? Yeah, I mean, totally. And I was so used to writing in a house voice, too, that even, you know, my slugs or my decks, like it was sort of, I could tailor it to the magazine I was working for at the time. And I knew what the editor would say, like, okay, that's fine. That can go versus like, it's a little too wordy or whatever. Like you learn those things. So there's obviously a freedom in podcasting that you can say it just the way that you would say it. And if you want to make a joke, you can make that joke. And for me, that's been very liberating. I think both professionally and sort of personally, because there's less of a boundary between those two. I am like heightened in the podcast, but even like ad reads and stuff, which I do, I just try to be myself. So, you know, that's a lifelong journey, of course. Like, who am I? (laughs) So I just lean into what feels good, what makes me laugh, what I think is really fascinating. Like, and when I get self-conscious about that, I'm like, no, no, that's why you're here. That's why people like what you do. You just got to like, you know, put the blinders on and keep doing it your way. And so I'm more inspired now than ever by, you know, self-proclaimed artists, because I've never seen myself like that. But in order to deliver something unique, you have to be totally in touch with, you know, your sensitivities and your proclivities. And podcasting gives a lot of space to that stuff. And no one's here to tell me like, oh, we don't do it that way. Like I can just do it and then it's done. So that's awesome. <laughs> and if it doesn't sound right, I'll fix it. Uh, I'll record exactly. it again. Yeah. So you never, you never had like an audio producer. You never had to work with somebody from like NPR or something to try and. You know, people have reined me in or been like that. You might not <laughs> want to say that, but I think I'm more sort of, I, I don't strive to be in politic, but I do strive to be, I don't know, surprising, but I don't <laughs> think there's anything I say. 
Yeah. Like, I don't think I'm saying, I'm not Joe Rogan. I'm not saying anything where people are like, oh my God, you know, like that is divisive. Like, that's not my deal. It's more just, this is the way I talk and this is the way I think. And like, hopefully that's fun and exciting. And magazines, the work of magazines, you know, it's all done by people. It's all done by people with nuance and bias and insecurity and all of that informs the stories we read. And so why do we act like, I don't know, journalism is without subjectivity? It can't be. And I think the subjectivity is interesting and, you know, ripe for exploration. And so I wanted to talk about not only the killed stories, which is probably how I pitched it, like, oh, each episode is going to be a different killed story. It's so exciting. But to me, the exciting thing is like, who are the people who are like, oh, you know what? That's not good enough for us. Or why are they saying it's not the right fit? Or what hidden powers are sort of influencing what stories make it and which ones don't? Are there advertisers? Are there hurt feelings, alliances, like that's juicy. I think that stuff's juicy. So Killed, you know, how did you pitch this? And you know, w- what do you see as its mission? So I had done a podcast with Audio Chuck, which is the you know very popular distribution platform behind shows like Crime Junkie and Park Predators and Anatomy of Murder. These are all very on-the-nose true crime shows about grisly murders at all. And I'd done another show with them called OC Swingers. You should check that one out if you're listening, about a handsome Newport Beach orthopedic surgeon and his pretty girlfriend who have been accused of serially drugging and raping multiple women. But I had been talking with Ashley Flowers, the founder of the company, about like what I could do next. If there's a follow-up season to Swingers, we batted around a couple different stories. Maybe we could slot into the rubric of Swingers, and nothing was quite taking, and I had pitched her something else, and she was sort of like, yeah. And then I was like, or, and I'd always had this idea in the back of my head. I love the name Killed, you know, the double entendre on a crime network. I was like, I'm a genius. And I mentioned it to her, and she was like, I love that. Like, I don't think she realized how in the weeds dorky it was going to get about journalism and how the sausage is made. I think if she did, she'd probably be like, it's not that good of an idea. But at the outset, like, you know, killed is just, that's grabby. And I'd always envisioned it a bit like a Columbo type show. Like, I'm sort of like a like a not perfect PI trying to crack these cases. And, you know, it's really hard to know why a story was killed. That's stuff that people keep under lock and key or, you know, it's it's vague even to the people who make the decisions themselves. They don't know why the publisher is like, ah, we don't love it. You know, they don't know everything. So I wanted to bring in the idea that, like, I'm going to do my best, but, like, at the end of the day, I'm just one person trying to muck around in like big media entities. I mean, probably terrible for my career path if I ever want to get a job in mass journalism again. But I don't know. I liked the idea of it so much. And I liked kind of bringing a sense of humor to it and a sense of fallibility to it and just trying to have frank conversations about what happens when someone's trying to put together a publication. It just seemed fresh to me. I really, really like making the show. And as I said, I, I listened to a few episodes and, you know, I recognized the people you were talking to. Oh, cool. I, I recognize, not that I knew them, but I knew oh. people like them. Yeah. And I have, have been in conversations similar to that, not maybe at the same scale. <laughs> One of the reporters in the, the USC story 
it's like, yeah, I, am, I feel like I've worked with that exact guy. The and bosses? Like, yeah, well, you're not the <laughs> bosses, the one, you know, reporter who was... Oh, Paul Pringle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah. I love him. I think every newsroom has somebody like that. It's like, well, I'm going to yeah. do it this way because this is the right yes. way to do it, and I'm going to hold yes. you accountable. An idealist. Right. Yes. A lot of journalists like to think in their small way that they're, you know, following an ideology, but we run into barriers all the time. Well, you can't do that. You can't report that because... It's unsubstantiated, you know, we'll get sued. If you can't verify it, then, you know, ethically you shouldn't be, publish it because it might not be true. So, you know, this is all part of our process. One thing that I think is so fascinating is like there's a difference between knowing something and being able to prove that something's true. You can feel it in your bones. It doesn't matter. Like you can look in someone's eye and know that they're lying. You just can. We all can, you know, but it, you can't prove that, you know, there's an episode, episode three of season two, The Quarterback, where the journalist Abby Haglidge discusses like the limits of journalism. And I think that's fair too. Like there are just some nuances that don't translate to the printed page. You just can't, you can't have a feeling that doesn't count, that doesn't hack it, you know? And, but sometimes you just know and there's no way to prove it. And I think that's the Paul Pringle paradox. The PPP. Yeah, there are. <laughs> I run into that all the time. I have people come up to me and say, well, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? And I was like, well, you know, if you find me somebody who, speak, who can speak on the record about that or give me a document that, that I can quote and point to, because otherwise I'm going to get challenged on that. I'm not going to be able to prove it, even though deep down I know it. Or maybe somebody has told me that or intimated that, but has not given me, has not said, no, that's not for on the record. You know, if you print that, I'm going to deny And I hope listeners have killed, like, I, you know, the premise is pulpy. Some of the, like, you know, marketing around it is as well. But, you know, I really adhere to stringent fact-checking and journalistic, quote-unquote, ethics. Like, I feel like there's moments where someone references something that happened and, you know, they say it was in 93, but it was in 94. I call that out. Like, there are no... Actually, there is a factual error in one of the episodes. I just realized in episode nine and the subject of the episode, Katie Rossman at the New York Times mentioned it too. We say Mayor Roshan is the editor of Los Angeles Magazine now, but he's not. There was some news reporting that he was asked to leave that position, but we'd already finished the episode and I was like, oh, it's such small potatoes. But I stand corrected. Mayor Roshan is no longer the editor of Los Angeles Magazine. Some of the stories are more sensationalistic maybe than others. Others seem rather kind of straightforward. And then even others are more like, you know, meat and potatoes journalism. The meat and potatoes journalism is the one that, that I got really into, which is basically a land use story in Aspen. Mm, yes. And that's what it that's was. the best it, one. A local journalist is, you know, following up his facts and, oh, this piece of property is going to be sold. Well, that's interesting. Let me write out about that. And then it turns out that yeah. the the person who buys it is a company associated with, what is it, Russian oligarchs? Is that what it is? Or, I mean, the word oligarch becomes very yes. <laughs> Business <laughs> a hot potato here, so Business I don't want to say it. But Businessman. Yes, a, a Russian billionaire. Yeah. Russian-born billionaire. He does not self-identify as Russian currently. Okay, yeah, and we should, we, <laughs> should, we should respect that wish. But something that starts out from very basic journalism and as very basic... Like, you know, this is all based on government documents and, and meeting notes, and we know all of this stuff. But it then kind of just got bigger and bigger and bigger to the point that it was something completely different. 
you know, I'm not going to spoil it. I mean, the, the series is called Kill. What do you think happens? Uh, what do you think happens? <laughs> that one I liked a lot. I liked the one having to do with the NFL and the player who, the black player who had married a white woman and was supposedly fired. The way that was killed was very different than some of the other episodes. No one would run it because they were scared of making the NFL mad or a specific team mad. You reported that story. We tried. We really did. We like went through, you know, as many newspaper.com articles as possible to validate this player's prowess in the league. You know, it's a very old story. It's almost 100 years old. This happened in the 50s or the, the 60s. I can't remember. It's not quite 100 Maybe years old. <laughs> yeah. No, that's not 100 years old. But it was a long time ago. And, you know, the main subject has since passed. And we really did our very best to corroborate the details where we could because it's important not to just take things at face value. So there is a lot of research and original reporting that goes into each episode of Killed, whether or not that's apparent. And what's nice about that story in particular, your reporting of it being killed in a way gets the story out there. It accomplishes what they were unable to do. Exactly. It's like a loophole. Yeah. Oh, we're just reporting about the way the story was reported. There's nothing to... And in the process, we just have to share all the facts so people can totally. better understand yeah. it. A frame around a frame. Oh, it's so, so smart. So smart. <laughs> Thank uh, so where are you getting these ideas? We have a submission form at killedstories.com. Originally, it was sort of word of mouth, friends, friends of friends, you know, people remembering, oh, I heard about this one when I worked at X Magazine, or I chased down a lot of well-known ones, some that have been reported on in the past where the participants are like, no, thank you, including kind of the big scandal that shook Premiere Magazine back in the day over a Planet Hollywood story featuring Sylvester Stallone that basically, I think the two top editors left Premiere and then Premiere sort of lost its steam and then kind of fell apart because these things really matter to the people they happen to, you know, even if their principles have been shaky before when it's your story you really care and i'm not implying that the journalists at premiere had shaky principles i'm just i think yeah when it's your story and it's your narrative all of a sudden like every detail feels catastrophic and then when you hear about someone else's story getting killed it's easier to kick the tires and be like oh that guy i don't know he his sources seemed not so credible or like who would want to read that like you have all of these ways to knock it down. But when it's your story, you kind of feel like this is a perfect, awesome, pure story. Everyone else is making the biggest decision in my life and it's messed up. Like there's a lot of feelings there. You know, you look at a movie like Spotlight where it's all very super positive and, you know, we're, we're just going to keep covering this. We're going to keep covering this. We're going to keep covering this. But also understanding that for the daily journalist, I don't want to say compromises, but there are things that you run into that the outcome is not what you had hoped or were led to believe was going to be. And so then it comes down to, well, what is that? You know, if you want to have a career in this, where do you draw the line? Do you quit? Do you say, well, that's beyond me. It's up. It was up to the owners. Totally. It was up to the owners. I did everything I could. Rick Carroll in the Aspen episode, I feel like does a great job of explaining that conundrum. He's like, I've got a house. I've got kids. Like... Am I really going to die on this sword? Probably not. Like, I want a job. I'm not going to walk out of the newsroom and never work in this small town again. You know, he's since left the Aspen Times and works at The Rival, the Aspen Daily News, which is, like, amazing. But 
at the moment of our conversation, he was very ambivalent on whether or not he should do the podcast because why bite the hand that feeds, even if the hand that feeds has, you know, trampled your work. Yeah. So, I mean, do you, how long do you think you can do this? How long oh do you want to do this? I would do it forever. I would have to have enough stories. I just got a funny one yesterday from a former colleague of mine. You know, there was a story this week or last in the New York Times about some Me Too reporting that was killed by, I believe, The Guardian. And that was New York in the New York Times. But I don't like necessarily, like, we get some criticism of the show. It's like, in some cases, like, oh, the stories weren't killed because ultimately they run somewhere else or... I guess everyone assumed that every episode would be an entire story that had already been written, I guess, fact-checked too. Like, those are rare, you know? Like, a, a perfectly preserved, intelligible story that will be interesting for 30 minutes. Like, that premise was a little flawed. So as more and more newsroom, newsrooms shut down and more and more magazines shutter, I imagine I'll just keep hearing more stories. So... I don't know. I could go on for forever. Yeah. What you said about these types of issues, these types of stories being rare. I mean, there are so many stories that are proposed that are probably shot down, you know, just in a few conversations. It's like, oh, yeah, that's something I can't prove. Nah, it's un- To get it all the way to the end and then have had it never run anywhere and have the writer who has invested so much time just give up and put it in a drawer and then unearth it for the show. Obviously, that's the dream, but it's hard to find. For sure. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I've been talking to Justine Harmon, who's the host and uh, creator of Killed, a podcast about killing stories before people had a chance to hear him. Justine, thanks for coming on the podcast. Oh, my gosh. That's it. That was so fun. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who report the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. To make sure you don't miss an episode of It's All Journalism, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, Amazon, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco is our audio producer. Amber Healy writes our web content. Amelia Brust is our booking manager. Steph Thomas manages our social media. Nick Dupre composed our theme music. Carolyn Belefsky designed our logo. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening.